You're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact Chai, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie. So, Achat uh, Aha, the start again, Achat Ha'am. Uh, was a mid-19th century, early 20th century Jewish philosopher, essayist, and he famously said, more than the Jews keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps the Jews. And, you know, the implication being wherever we've wandered, you know, whether on land where we had ancient roots or whether we were sojourners and immigrants and transplants, we took Shabbat with us. You know, we took Shabbat with us. This was among the traditions that we held to. We gathered on Friday nights, we lit candles, we drank wine, broke bread, and created this kind of sacred force field around our homes on this day. And whether we were in times of relative safety or relative danger, wherever we were in the world, no matter how poor we were, you know, people made a priority of doing this, you know, like scrounged each week to set a beautiful table and light candles and pour wine. And some of us are descendants from people like that. Um, And even if not, we are all still benefiting from the collective commitment over generations of people who pass these traditions down generation to generation, uh, such so that we could be here and celebrate them and enjoy them. Many of us celebrate Thanksgiving through practices and traditions that connect us to our families, to our history, the ones we were born into, the ones we inherited, the ones we chose, um, and connect us to our lineage. Um, Also, whether actual ancestors or sort of inherited by virtue of where we now live. Um, Shabbat's similar, you know? Um, I wanna thank all of those ancestors for passing down this tradition to us. I wanna thank, you know what, I don't know if you notice every week I'm drinking out of this Kiddush cup. This was made by my grandma, great grandma, Bella Honeyman. She made it in her retirement community in Delray Beach, Florida. Um, It says Bat Mitzvah, Elizabeth, January, 1994. Um, This was a few years before she died. But I want to thank her and uh, my great grandpa Julius, who I never met, for lighting Shabbat candles in their home and speaking Yiddish such that my grandma, Harriet, who you may have heard me talk about here and there, she hated that I became a rabbi so that she could rebel against her parents and do nothing Jewish in her house so that my mom could rebel against her Jewish mother and decide to light Shabbat candles every so often to light the menorah and send me to Sunday school so that I could rebel in my own way, you know, and so that all of us sitting here are sort of part of this legacy of rebellion and counter-rebellion that is part of the lineage passed down generation to generation that, you know, yields at the end of the day, us sitting here doing Judaism in kind of our own funky way. And by the way, if you converted to Judaism, you are you become adopted into the lineage of Abraham and Sarah. You are B'nai Avraham Vasara, a child of Sarah and Abraham, who were the ultimate rebels of their time in this, you know, the story we read that we're in the midst of in Genesis right now. 
And that's very much that same sort of theme of uh, rebellion and counter-rebellion at the very same time as passing down lineage and practices. Um, these traditions passed down generation to generation, you know, they traveled with us across the centuries and across locations. And the gifts of the local places that we inhabited, whether like the tunes, the food, the clothes, you know, wherever we went, we sort of integrated them into our practice of Judaism. Some of that we are able to go back and sort of tease apart the threads and say, aha, and this is what we picked up in Spain, and this is what we picked up in North Africa, this is what we picked up in Eastern Europe. And some of it is just so embedded in Jewish practice, it's, it's hard to know um, whatever wasn't. When we can actually give credit where credit is due, where traditions have come from and offer gratitude for what we've carried with us, it helps us connect more deeply to our history, like have a sense of who we are and where we come from. and. Um, and also the people that we live alongside, like without even realizing, without even realizing. So for those of us celebrating here in Chicago right now, um, and if you're not in Chicago, that's okay. Um, we know, I know that the land that we are celebrating our Jewish holidays on week to week and celebrated Thanksgiving last night was cared for and passed down generation to generation through generations of native people. Many, many more generations of native peoples than America has been here um, or than white settlers settled this land. So before there were settlers here from Europe, here in Chicago, in, the, in this chair, in this house on Larchmont Avenue where I sit, there were the Ojibwe and Odawa and Potawatomi and Kickapoo and Peoria and Miamia peoples and probably others. The tribal estate of the Potawatomi apparently was bigger, like twice as big as the state of Illinois, 90, 89 million acres of land before it was gradually reduced to nothing in 1833 with the Treaty of Chicago. As I was poking around this week, trying to learn more about the native history of this city that I love, whose name Chicago derives from, you know, one of these tribes. It's a sort of mysterious word that is hard to pin down. Um, I learned how much of what we consider to be Chicago is not just built alongside, but literally on top of indigenous societies literally on top of. So the trade routes that Europeans built in the 1600s came to be on well-established Indian trails, indigenous trails. And when they came up with the grid plan for Chicago, for Chicago's streets in 1833, the ones that were on diagonals, like Ogden and Milwaukee and Grand Avenue, were actually built right on top of indigenous trails. Historians now can see that the interstate highway system was largely built on indigenous trails. We're not talking like a little like forest pathway. We're talking like actual highway, you know, wider than six feet wide, big trails. Um, so when we say that we live on indigenous land, we don't mean that like metaphorically, we are actually literally biking and walking and driving down the actual streets in many cases that indigenous tribes created. Every time I say the name of this city that I love, 
I'm invoking a place by the name given it by people who were displaced in order for me to be here. And while many of us recognize this, we easily also forget that there are still 65,000 people of indigenous descent who live in and around Chicago today. This week in the Parsha, we read about Jacob fleeing his home. So you may remember from last week, Jacob tricks his elderly blind father into giving him his brother Esau's blessing. And Esau is very upset about this. Isaac's very upset about this too, but Esau is in a position to kill him. He says he's going to kill him, so Jacob runs away. And he is running and running and running and running, and finally it gets dark and he stumbles upon this place. And this is where this week's Parsha picks up. He stumbles upon this place and he's so tired and he picks up a rock and he puts his head down on it and he falls asleep and he has this dream you may recognize like the name of the dream. This is Jacob's ladder. And he dreams about a ladder with its roots in the earth and its top pointing toward the heavens. And angels are going up and coming down and going up and coming down. He has this vision of God telling him, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, Jacob. It's going to be okay. Um, he wakes up and he says, my God, like you were here and I didn't even know it. God was in this place. I had no idea. And he wakes up and he builds an altar there out of the stone that his head was on. And he renames the place Bethel, house of God, just like the shul you grew up in. And the Torah strangely mentions at that point that there had been a previous name for this place as well, Luz, meaning unknown. It's a very strange thing for the Torah to mention the, the Torah regularly mentions places where um, the patriarchs are naming and renaming places where they have spiritual moments. It's just a noteworthy thing. He names the place Bethel. It had been previously called Luz. By whom? I mean, I read that and I'm like, tell me more. Strangely, our usual commentary writers, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, do not pick up on this. But a few do. So there's this one particular writer, Spanish, Rabbeinu Bachia, and he says, why did the Torah bother to say this to us? You know, that at a previous point in history, this town had been called Luz. What benefit do we derive from such information? He asks. Great question. What is the point of looking backwards? Why not just understand, here we are. I've now built an altar. I've given it a new name. I've planted my new flag. Why not just move forward at this point? He says, there must be some benefit to looking back. What is it? So in this case, Rabbeinu Bachia says, the previous name of the place is here to let the reader know that at this site, this was the starting place of life on earth as we know it, he says. The words luz hasadeh, luz of the field. I don't exactly know what luz is, but it's mentioned elsewhere in the Midrash. He says these words mean the place in the spine from which the tissue is able to regenerate itself. The place in the spine from which the tissue is able to regenerate itself, says this 13th century rabbi who had never heard of stem cells yet somehow understands that the spine contains cells in the body that can help it regenerate and make tissues and organs. So too, he says, the earth can be reborn 
and reconstituted and renamed and reshaped and maybe re-reshaped again and again. And so he says, just like it's a miracle that the human body can regenerate from its own cells, the earth too can be remade, can be healed, and it must be. There's a lot of talk about healing, healing, about laying to rest the grudges and the blame from the past and moving forward toward a brighter, better future. I'm guilty myself of using the language of healing sometimes to talk about what we want to do, what we want to be part of, if we want to live meaningfully and contribute meaningfully, but we can't do that without looking backward, without seeing where tshuva still hasn't been made for past wrongs and addressing past wrongs, even just addressing the existence of some of this history. Recognizing, witnessing, affirming the truth of the past and of past wrongs and making a meaningful step towards writing them again and again and again is what creates the conditions for the trust on the part of the injured party and for the sacrifice on the part of the people who, who did the harm or who benefit from the harm necessary for tikkun, for healing. Healing in the body requires the right conditions to facilitate recovery and regeneration. It's just, it's just a fact. The body needs certain things to heal. And tikkun, healing between people and certainly between peoples, requires those conditions as well. And we can't talk about tikkun without also talking about teshuva, quote my rabbi Sharon Browse. 50 years ago, there were descendants of pilgrims who wanted to hold a banquet to celebrate the anniversary of the Mayflower landing in Plymouth and asked a Wampanoag man, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that exactly right, named Wamsutta Frank James to make a speech on the occasion. And they asked if he would show them the speech first just to check for grammar, you know, and punctuation. And he shared the speech with them and they would not let him give it because it was a little too truthful about the history of Thanksgiving. And as a result of that ultimate metaphoric moment, the United American Indians of New England declared Thanksgiving to be a national day of mourning on which many indigenous people fast when most Americans are feasting. So this man's granddaughter, Keisha James, recognizing that this holiday has become a beloved tradition for American families. She doesn't object to families gathering to do Thanksgiving to celebrate love and family. She says, just try to divorce your Thanksgiving celebrations from the Thanksgiving mythology. So no more pilgrims and Indians, no more teaching your children about the first Thanksgiving as we learn it in public school where it was this friendly meal. In this advice, we see how tshuva begins right? by not burying the history of the moment, but by looking at it, by addressing past wrongs. We can do this and still hold gratitude for all the things that Thanksgiving has come to represent, family and health and friendship. In the depiction of people lighting Shabbat candles, these things right here in, in the pictures, 
there's often like a circular glow around the candles. And I always like envision that bubble, like the, the circle as this bubble of warmth and protection in which for one day we practice peacemaking, love making, we practice singing, we practice having elevated, slower, more nuanced conversations. We practice leaning in. We have nowhere to go, so we have as much time as we need to talk and to try and understand what we don't understand as well as we wish we did. Or to try to help somebody else at the table hear what you're really hoping they might hear this year. That little glow of warmth for me is, is like representative of Olam Haba. Shabbat is supposed to be me'en olam haba, a little taste of the world as it could be. It's a time for teaching ourselves to sit inside of this protective bubble and not run away from uncomfortable conversations, but instead to hold the messy reality of our past that we either live, that we have actual descendants that lived, or that we inherited by virtue of being here in this country. Um, and the reality of people in our midst to whom we owe a great debt of gratitude because it was their families and their traditions that kept this land here and healthy. And it was because of their strength and power of tradition that I'm here lighting Shabbat candles right now. And I say thank you. And I acknowledge and for tonight, for tonight, that's enough. I look forward, though, in the coming days and weeks to talking more as we try in our community to practice anti-racism, to also talk and think about what it means to be aware of our being on indigenous land here in this country. And I want to say thank you tonight for being part of this conversation with me, one-sided though it may be. I look forward to reading the comments later. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our Director of Communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.